0: So Abraham is our focus in Hebrews chapter 11, and last week we looked at the faith that Abraham had that caused him to leave the land he was familiar with and go to the land that God had promised. We saw that God is the sovereign one who calls his people to himself out of darkness and into light, and that Abraham had faith and he obeyed, and he left all that he was familiar with. He left his land, he left his people, he left his family, his father's house, the culture, the religion, the civilization, the city. And everything that he was familiar with and he went sight unseen to a land that God promised him and to a land to which God would direct him. And today we're going to see the, the faith that Abraham had also not only just, not only caused him to leave the land that he was from, but also to dwell, to live in the land that God had promised him and to live in that land as a stranger and an alien, as a sojourner, as, as one who had really, he was to live as one who had no call and no no claim upon any of the land that he was promised. And so he dwelt among a people that were not his people, in a land that was really promised to him but was not his land, and he did so by faith. And it is the manner of Abraham's life that the author of Hebrews focuses on, the way in which he lived, and there's a parallel here for us, because the word stranger and alien that we would apply to Abraham and the way he lived in the land is the same words, the same analogy that is used of us living in this world. And so there is a parallel between us and our lives and Abraham and his life. And we have to observe that parallel and we have to see what it is that Abraham did so you and I can see how it is that the author expects us to live. We are to live as aliens and strangers in this land. So we we see in Abraham not just how faith saves us, that he believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. That's his salvation. But we also see in Abraham the way that faith enables us to live in this world that really belongs to the children of God but is not yet our home. We are aliens and strangers here. So that is our outline. We see Abraham's faith in him leaving the land that he was familiar with, in living in the land that he was promised, and then in looking for the eternal city. That's Hebrews Chapter 11, verses 8, 9, and 10. Last week we looked at verse 8, today we're looking at verse 9, and we're going to save for next week what it means to look for the eternal city. This is the manner in which Abraham lived. So let's read verses 8 through 10. By faith Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise." For he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. That word, that, that, that phrase, lived as an alien, is the translation of one word in the original language. That one word means to dwell beside or to live as a foreigner, to live near somebody. It describes one who, who lives or dwells next to people, but he dwells as one who really doesn't belong amongst those people. So it means to live as an alien to live as an outcast, to live as a foreigner amongst other people who do belong. Amongst all the other people who belong, Abraham lived as one who did not belong. And that describes not only his relationship to the people, but also his relationship to the land that God had promised him. Abraham dwelt among a people who were not his people. Remember, he had left his people back in Ur of the Chaldeans all of his acquaintances, his business associates, his family, his father's house, everything he was familiar with, Abraham and his servants and Lot and his servants, they left that land and went towards the promised land. So he dwelt among a people who were not his people. Further, he dwelt in a land that was not his land. At least it was not his land yet in terms of him possessing it. It was his land already in terms of God's purposes it was an already but not yet. It was his land. God said, I'm going to give you this land. So it was Abraham's land. The, the deed was as good as done. It was his land, but it was not his land. It's interesting. God said, I'm going to give you this land. So then if that's the intention of God, then safe, secure, sure, unalterable, it's Abraham's land. There's nothing except to work out the details after that. And yet Abraham went into that land and he dwelt in that land as one who had no right and no claim to that land. He dwelt in that land as one who had no citizenship in it, because he didn't have a citizenship there. He lived, as it were, in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, verse 9 says. He had no property or possession there. Abraham never possessed any land there except one little small plot that he bought from the sons of Heth to bury his wife later in life. It was the only land that Abraham ever possessed. And yet he dwelt in that land that God had promised him. He dwelt there as a foreigner among a people, not his people, in a land that was really, he didn't possess it. He he didn't have any claim to it. He couldn't, Abraham couldn't go out and say from the tree to the river to that stump to that gravel pit, that is all mine. Never had any of that. Instead, he dwelt like a foreigner, like an alien, a sojourner, one just passing through, living in tents. Have you ever been overseas, or at least in a foreign country? I guess you can go now to communist uh, uh, Canada. You can don't even, you don't even have to travel to go to a, now a foreign country, right? If you have ever been in a foreign country or some place where it is it is completely foreign to you. I mean, Canada is not that foreign in terms of culture, but like going overseas, and you've walked among a people in a land that is not your people, they're not your land, and everywhere you turn, everything you see, everything you hear, everything you touch. Everything you taste and everything you smell reminds you that you are not at home. Right? And those foreign, those foreign nations, those foreign areas, everything about them is, is completely alien to us. And so when you wake up in the morning, everything that you experience reminds you, this is not my home. I belong to a different country. I'm familiar with a different country. It can be the language that you hear or the culture that you experience, the worldview that people have, the commercial practices, the cultural conventions, the customs, the politics, the social life, the architecture, the way that crimes are committed and punished and the judicial system of a foreign land, the business driving on the wrong side of the road, the religion, the family dynamics, the economics, the way they pronounce certain things, even if they're using English, they name things different, they call things different, they they use different language. And everything that you experience reminds you, this is not my home. I'm familiar with something entirely other than this. That's what it was for Abraham. He left her of the Chaldeas and he went to a land he had never seen, never experienced, never walked through. And upon arriving there, he was immediately surrounded by people who spoke different languages, people who spoke different dialects, people who had a different culture, different religion, he was a Yahweh worshiper, and he was a Yahweh worshiper virtually, not exclusively, because Melchizedek was there, and there were obviously some Yahweh worshipers in the land of promise, but he was virtually alone in his worship of the one true God, Abraham and his family. And he lived in that land of promise, a land promised to him, but not possessed by him. In fact, not possessed by him at any time in his life. And he dwelt in tents, the text says. Now, you may think that if Abraham had real faith, what he should have done was come into the land and just immediately lay claim to it, right? Hey, God's promised me this land, and so I'm taking it. i got to live out my faith. i got to name it. i got to claim it. God said it's mine, so it's going to be mine, and I'm going to start acting as if it's mine. I'm going to start living as if it's mine. But Abraham didn't do that. He didn't come into the land of promise and start immediately walking around his block giving eviction notices to all the Canaanites who were there, saying, you're out of here, Just it's a matter of time, you should probably pack up your bags and leave. God has promised me this land, right? He didn't do that singing, this land is my land, this land is my land, this land isn't your land, and it ever will be. From the river Euphrates to the river of Egypt, this land was made for me and me. <laughs> Abraham didn't, didn't do that. It was a slippery slope once we did the slideshow, then we do the singing... And he come back next week for the interpretive dance. Thank Father Abraham. <laughs> Abraham didn't enter into the land and go to war with all the nations there, claiming the land to be his. Abraham didn't enter into the land and start buying up territory. Every time somebody put their house on the market, Abraham bought it. He didn't become a, a real estate magnate and start just gobbling up everything that was for sale, saying, eventually God's going to give me this land, all of it will be mine. He didn't do that. Abraham didn't even, as far as the record shows, didn't start telling everybody in the land that the land was going to be his. He lived as entirely as an alien, a foreigner, a stranger. And he went in obedience. And as I said earlier, the only plot of land he ever really possessed was one that he bought later in his life for the burial plot of Sarah. And that's in Genesis chapter 23. Listen to this description. Now, Abraham ended up buying it for the full price, but the sons of Heth tried to give it to him. Genesis 23, verse 1, Now Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. Sarah died in Kiriath-arabah, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. Then Abraham rose from before his dead and spoke to the sons of Heth, saying, I am a stranger and a sojourner among you. Give me a burial site among you that I may bury my dead out of my sight. And he was offering to buy it. They tried to give it to him, and he said, No, I will buy it from you for the full price of it. When Abraham described himself as an alien and a sojourner among them at the death of Sarah, he had lived in the land for 62 years. 62 years. How long do you have to live in a land before you are no longer regarded as an alien? Now, you might think this would be a good place to make an Ed Barba joke, but I'm not going to do that. <laughs> that would be low-hanging fruit. That might be a migrant worker joke itself. Abraham insisted on buying the land at the full and fair market value of it, and that was not an expression of his lack of faith. I think Abraham buying the land was itself an act of faith, and here's why. By that point, in Genesis 23, this is after God had already revealed to Abraham that though the land was his by covenant, Abraham would not possess it, his son would not possess it, his grandson would not possess it, and his great-grandsons would not possess it, but instead they would go into a foreign land, and there they would be oppressed, and God would bring them out of there with great wealth and then bring them into the land some 400 years later. So Abraham knew by the time that he bought Sarah's burial plot that though the land was promised to him and he would certainly live in it and possess it and dwell in it, it would not be in this lifetime. It would be in the next lifetime. So Abraham's act of buying that burial plot was him basically saying, this land is mine, but I cannot lay claim to it now because God is not giving it to me now. God is going to give it to me in the future. In the meantime, I'll buy this little piece of land so that his wife could be buried there and then eventually Abraham was buried there. Abraham wanted to be buried in that land, not the land of his fathers, but in that land because he knew that land belonged to him, but God had not yet given him possession of it. His buying of that land was itself an expression of his faith that that land would be his someday and that he would walk in it and he wanted to be buried in that land. Do you remember Joseph? And we're going to look at this later in Hebrews chapter 11. Joseph expresses the same faith when he says to his children, when you, when the Lord God brings you up out of this land and takes you into the land of promise, just as he said he will do, bring my bones up with you and bury me in that land. That was an act of faith because Joseph knew he likewise will possess that land. He likewise will dwell in that land but not in this lifetime. The patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, and the rest of them, that knew that they would dwell in that land that God would give to them, they did not view their death as a hurdle to God fulfilling that promise. They knew, if you trust in a God who raises the dead, then if God doesn't give me possession of this land in my life, He will raise me from the dead and give me possession of this land at some point because God has promised to do that very thing. So resurrection was the key to the fulfilling of the land of promise, which we'll look at next week. Now, there's something that is directly parallel to us and to our experience in the life of Abraham, and it is this, that you and I are called aliens and strangers and sojourners as well. And we cannot miss that direct parallel between the life of Abraham and how he is described and how he lived, and the life that you and I are to live and how we are described in the New Testament. First Peter chapter one, those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia who are chosen. Now Peter describes his audience as those who are aliens, chosen aliens, and they were the scattered ones in that they lived amongst all of these other nations and he is writing to a dispersed group of Christian people. But he describes them as aliens not just because they lived amongst all these other peoples, but he describes them as aliens because they lived in this world. Which is why Peter says in second first Peter chapter two, verse eleven, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. And that is in a section immediately after that Peter describes us as choice stones, chosen race, royal priesthood, and holy nation. We are something, as believers, we are something other than tied to this world. We're aliens in this world. First Peter 1.17, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth. The time of your stay on earth. That is the language of a temporary passing through. That's what you hear when you check in at a hotel. Enjoy your stay. Enjoy, enjoy your stay. Do they expect you to be there for the rest of your life? No, they expect you just passing through. You're just coming in, you're leaving. So Peter says, conduct yourselves in fear during that time of your brief sojourn in this world. That's how Peter describes us as believers. Now before salvation, interestingly, the same language of stranger and sojourner, the same language is used of us, but in relation to being strangers to something else. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12, Remember that you were at that time, that is, before Christ, separate from Christ, excluded from the Commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Ephesians 2:19, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. Say, hold on. Peter describes us as aliens and strangers. Paul says you're no longer aliens and strangers. So what is it? Are we aliens and strangers or not? It really depends on which kingdom you're in, right? If you're in the kingdom of darkness, then you are an alien and a stranger to the kingdom of light. You're cut off from the life of God, you're cut off from the covenants and the promises. You are without God in this world. So you are a stranger to everything that pertains to God in his kingdom. But if you're in God's kingdom, then you are a stranger to everything that pertains to life in this world and the kingdoms of this world. So you're all you've always been a stranger. Right? You've always been an alien. Just depends upon what you're an alien to. Before you're in Christ, you were an alien to the things of God and the promises and the grace of God. After you were in Christ, you were an alien to the things of this world. That describes the utter and complete translation, transformation that has happened in your salvation. You have been taken out of darkness and put in light. You have been taken out of death and put into life, out of the kingdom of Satan into the kingdom of God. Into out of the kingdoms of this world and into the kingdom of God's dear Son, into heaven itself. It it translated, completely removed. Always been a stranger, but now you're a stranger to something that you were not a stranger to before. And as strangers in this world, Paul says in Philippians chapter three that our citizenship is actually in heaven. See, this is how this is how fundamentally you and I in Christ have been translated out of the things of this world into the things of eternity, and into the kingdom of God. We are our citizenship is in heaven. Philippians three verse twenty. Our citizenship is in heaven from which we also eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into the conformity with the body of His glory by the exertion of the power that He has even to subject all things to Himself. And so while we are in this world, Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20, we are ambassadors for Christ. So now we have gone from one kingdom to another. Now we reside in this kingdom. Now our citizenship is in this kingdom. Our citizenship is in heaven. And rather than living now as if we are amongst these people that we were once amongst and, and and among and in and part of and were friendly with now we are ambassadors to them so now we are ambassadors to those and we plead with them to be reconciled to God through the death of his son so God has moved us out of one kingdom into another kingdom and now we are ambassadors to that kingdom and the very language of ambassadors suggests that we don't belong here doesn't it You go to a consulate or an embassy, and you walk in and you meet the ambassador. Where is his citizenship? It's from another country. And yet he's dwelling in this country, representing the country from which he comes. Our citizenship is in heaven, and we dwell here in this land, representing a kingdom, another kingdom from which we get our citizenship. Hebrews 11, verse 13 says, All these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them, that is the promises, and having welcomed them from a distance and having, look at this, confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. This is what Abraham did. Even when he went in to buy the burial plot of Sarah, he said, I am a stranger and a sojourner among you. They confessed that they were strangers and aliens on this earth. That was their confession. Abraham knew, this land belongs to me, but it doesn't belong to me. This land belongs to me, but this this is not my home. Eventually, God would give that land to him, and then it would belong to him, and then it will be his home. But in the meantime, we are aliens and strangers here. And look how the text describes us in verse 9, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, or describes Abraham dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob. that, That phrase, dwelling in tents, is an odd phrase in the original language. The word dwelling means to live or to reside, to inhabit and to settle. To settle down. It describes a permanence. It describes a finality, a rest. Describes putting in, putting down permanent roots and, and settling into someplace and, and being there for an extended period of time and finding your rest and making your home there. It suggests a permanent settlement. And yet the word tents describes anything but that, doesn't it? Tents don't have foundations. Tents aren't permanent. Tents, tents rot and fade and they tear and they get blown away by a strong windstorm in the Arabian desert. They're temporary and moved and mobile and they don't have foundations. And yet Abraham permanently dwelt In a temporary dwelling. That's the the conflict there. It's almost a self contradictory phrase. And this really describes, and it is a picture of our dilemma. Because while we are here in this world, we permanently dwell here, right? We permanently dwell here, but we permanently dwell here really in temporary dwellings, don't we? There's a parallel there. We permanently dwell here in temporary dwellings. While you're in this world, you're not going to be anywhere else while you're in this world except in this world. So, in a sense, you've to settle down, don't you? In a sense, you're gonna buy a piece of property and a house, you're gonna settle in, you're gonna, you're here for the long haul, aren't you? you? Say, well, I'm here for the long haul, at least until I die. Well, that's right. But until you die, you're not going anywhere else. You're gonna stay here, that's obvious. So, while you're here, then, you have gotta, in some way, settle down in temporary dwellings. Imagine a Canaanite meeting Abraham and saying to Abraham, uh, hey, nice to meet you. I've uh, noticed you from afar, as I've been traveling back and forth and doing commerce. I've, I've seen your tent here. It's been a number of years. I thought I'd stop in and say hi, find out who you are. Uh, how long have you been in this land? And say, oh, I've been here sixty years. Sixty years. Yeah, sixty years. Well, you're intense. Where are you going? How, how much longer are you gonna stick around? I'm not sticking around. I'm not leaving anywhere, I should say. I'm sticking around. I'm staying here. This is this is where I'm staying. I'm staying here in this land until I die. Then the Canaanite might say, well, if you're going to be in this land and be here until you die, you might as well settle in, get comfortable, make this place your home. That's always the temptation, isn't it? Living in this world to think that this is our home and to lose sight of the fact that this is not our home. We're aliens and strangers here for as long as it is that we live here. And he dwelt in this way with Abraham, or sorry, with Isaac and with Jacob, and he taught his children the same promise, because Isaac and Jacob lived in tents as well. In fact, the reference to all three of these patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is intended to call to our mind the entire time of their sojourning because Abraham came into the land, he had Isaac and Isaac had Jacob, and eventually it was Jacob who would leave the land of promise and go down at the command of God into the land of Egypt uh, to, to flee the famine and to be cared for by Joseph in the land of Egypt in the land of Goshen. So the reference to all three of these patriarchs takes us all the way through that, that path that we traveled a few weeks ago when we looked all the way through that land promise in the book of Genesis to the end of the book of Genesis. Abraham lived to be 175 and he died in the land. And when Abraham died, Isaac was 75 and Jacob, Abraham's grandson, was 15 years old. So all three of these men, for 15 years at least, lived together and they lived together in tents. Abraham Whatever else, whatever failings Abraham might have had, he at least passed along to Isaac and to Jacob, his grandson, the way in which they were to live in the land. Because it's not as if the minute that Abraham died, all of a sudden Isaac said, all right, we're going to set down, we're going to set up roots, we're going to build a house, we're going to set up a farm here. He didn't do that. For the, the entirety of those three generations, they lived in tents all the way through until they went into the land of Exodus, uh, into Egypt. Why, why is it that they lived that way? Because Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob all knew, they all understood that though the land was promised to them and eventually they would possess all of it, that it was not theirs right then. This is a reminder also of the vulnerability in which with which they lived, dwelling in tents. Remember, Abraham was a wealthy man. And by wealthy, I mean he had so much livestock and so many possessions that at some point he and Lot had to go separate ways because the land could not sustain all that they had. Abraham was a very wealthy man. A very wealthy man living in a tent out in the middle of that land surrounded by warring factions and warring kings who were going to war and taking everybody and pillaging one another constantly. That was something that placed Abraham in a very vulnerable position. He was very vulnerable. Living out in tents? In a land like that, when most cities you can you can you can go into the land of Israel today and you can see cities that have foundations that date prior to the time of Abraham. They had cities with foundations and walls and guard towers and all of that around those cities. Why? Because everybody was constantly at war with one another, similar to our day our, our day today, but it was much more concentrated in that area. Well, if you're if you're a man with that many possessions sitting out in the middle of the the valley in the middle of the field, everybody can see you. They can see your herds. They can see your possessions. They can see all of your servants. You're very vulnerable out there. How did Abraham exist for a hundred years in the land with that kind of vulnerability? There was a secret. You know what the secret was? We read it in Psalm 105 earlier. When they were only few in number, very few and strangers in it, and they wandered from nation to nation and from one kingdom to another people, He, that is God, He permitted no man to oppress them and He reproved kings for their sake. Do not touch My anointed ones and do My prophets no harm. In other words, the psalmist is describing the mighty works of God, whereby for a hundred years he reproved kings and he kept Abraham safe, even as vulnerable as he was, even when they were few in number in the land. God said to everybody around him, he protected him and said, you will touch not my anointed and you will do my prophets no harm. God sovereignly protected Abraham out in that wilderness. You know why it was that God sovereignly protected Abraham? because he had guaranteed the end of what he was going to give to Abraham. And if Abraham can trust God for the promises regarding things yet future, then he can trust God for the providences of things immediate. And you and I are in the same situation. We can look and trust God for His promises, knowing that He will accomplish His end, and He will accomplish everything that He has said concerning us. And if we can trust Him for that, which is far off, we can certainly trust Him for all of the outworking of His providences in the day to day. Because if God has guaranteed the end, He has also guaranteed the means to that end. And if God has ordained the end, then He has ordained all the means to that end. And if God is overseeing the end so as, to, so as to certify and promise its accomplishment and to make it absolutely certain, then we can trust Him for all the providences that lead us day by day, moment by moment, year by year, in all of our sojourning here on earth. Abraham did not have to worry about his day-to-day interactions and his day-to-day issues because he was trusting God for the promises. He knew the land belonged to him, and he wasn't going to die, and his child was not going to die, and the sons of promise were not going to die. Why? Because God had guaranteed the end. And if God has guaranteed the end, then we can trust Him for the means as well. If we believe God's promises, then we can trust also His providences. So how do we live then? There's a parallel here, obviously. I've kind of hinted at it. How is it that you and I live as aliens and strangers, sojourners, travelers, and exiles, as men and women who really have a true home and a country that is not in this world, whose citizenship is in heaven? This is a difficult balance, I think, for us. I think it's probably more difficult for us sitting here in this nice, comfortable building, going home to nice, comfortable houses, than it is for our brothers and sisters in other countries whose houses have been destroyed by bombing air raids. We, we are, we are in a sense tied to the things of this world in a way that other believers do not experience, unfortunately for them, or maybe fortunately for them, depending on what your perspective is. But we have to be in this world, don't we? And this is a difficult balance. We, we have to live and do commerce and get married and raise children and have families and go to work. In a sense, we have to pay for our bills, we have to buy things to eat, we have to prepare our food, we have to serve one another, we have to worship, we have to, to love one another and care for one another. And in and in a sense, it is almost entirely it is entirely impossible to not be concerned at all about the things in this world because we have to be concerned by the things in this world. There are things that go on in this world that affect us. Things in this world affect the ease and the comforts with which we do all of the things that we have to do. So we have a legitimate concern for the kingdom of God and His truth and His word and His church and His people and His causes and how it is that we can contribute to those and advance those things. We have a legitimate concern for those whom God has entrusted to us, whether it is our families, our children, our grandchildren, our co-workers, the people in our church, our neighbors, anybody over which we have authority or or exercise oversight. There is a legitimate concern that we even have for our fellow man. We don't like to, nor should we ever like to, or, or be unconcerned with the fact, of seeing people be destroyed, whose, whose lives are ruined, who are harmed. And yet we live in this world where the nations rage, people bomb one another, nation rises up against nation, there's wars, there's rumors of wars, there's pestilence, wicked men prosper, justice is not done, people are murdered, we have abortion that is rampant, sexual immorality that is the order of the day. All of this stuff affects us. All of this stuff affects the church. And it would be wrong and unbiblical if we just said, well, look, this is not my, this is not my home. Therefore, I don't care about any of this. My neighbor gets pillaged and I just say, oh, it's a, it's not my home. Why, why should I care what happens to my neighbor? Or something happens to my children. I say, well, this is not our home. So, hey, just get used to it. There is a sense in which we are concerned about the things that happen here. And it is a legitimate concern that we have. And I think it is an unbiblical response. To say, I'm just not going to care about any of it. Why should I care if people are destroyed, if souls are ruined, if people are harmed? We ought to be concerned for the flourishing and the good of our fellow man, right? And yet, how are we to be involved in these things without being consumed by these things? That is a very difficult balance. And I, would, I will say to you, there is no formula that I'm going to present to you that tells you how that is to be. Does does the example of Abraham mean that we all have to live in tents or that we should all sell our homes and go get mobile homes and we should live in trailers? Is that the lesson to be learned? That's not the lesson to be learned. I think the lesson to be learned from Abraham is that we should all have the mindset that even though we might dwell in a home, even a nice home, we have to remember that it's only a tent. This body is only a tent. This is not my my home. I can't, I can't cling to these things. Here's the balance, I think. It's not that we lack concern the things in this world, it's that we lack despair about the things of this world. There's a difference there. It's not that we lack concern. It's that we lack despair. We can be concerned without ever being without hope. So we're not unconcerned, but we're not without hope either. Because our message is a positive one and our future is a very bright one And our confidence is in a God who is going to conquer all of the kingdoms. He's going to establish His kingdom. He's going to set up His kingdom. He's going to rule and reign in truth and righteousness forevermore. It's a very optimistic future that we have. So we can we can be concerned, but we don't have to be in despair about these things. So there is a way in which we can say we can work and labor in this world for the good of our fellow man, for the advancement of God's causes. And really, Proverbs says it is the fool who is unconcerned about the things of this life. It's the fool who says, yeah, the roof is leaking, but hey, this is not my home. It's the fool who says, yeah, I might have a harvest full of fruit out in the field, but this is not my home. I'm not going to harvest. I'm just going to sit back and wait for God to accomplish His purposes. Those are the marks of folly. That's the mark of a fool. It's the wise man who says, I will be involved in this world, but I'm not going to despair over the course of this world because I know that this is not my home. So we can be involved in concern, but not in despair. We should be involved, I'd put it this way, we should be involved in the affairs of this world without having an affair with the things of this world. We can be involved in the affairs of this world without having an affair with the things of this world. And you say, well, how do I know if I'm having an affair with the things of this world? You have to evaluate that. How tied are you to it? Teach your children like Abraham did, that this is not your home. You're just passing through, and you are eventually going to die. Because by faith we live in this land that is not our home. We call a different place our home country, our home nation, our citizenship is there. This world is not our home and it never will be. It never can be because this world is unfit for us as children of God. It's unfit for us. Do you want this place to be your home? That's the peak of of folly or folly, either one. That's the peak of folly that's the mark of a fool to think that this world is your home and to long for it to be so and the longer we live in this foreign land the more foreign it should feel to us the, the the longer we are here and the more we experience and see and the older that we get the more foreign everything around us should feel and look and seem to us so that we get to the end of our lives and we say i just want to go home i'm tired of this place and we're end up, we going to end up going to a home that we will never get tired of for all of eternity. So how is it then that we relate to the people of this world if this world is not our home? We ought to be concerned with them. And, and keep in mind, friends, that the unbelievers that you interact with, this is their home, and this world is all their hope. Most unbelievers that you and I encounter have no hope for anything beyond this life. They're, they're running as if this is all they have because in their mind they know that this is all they have. And we ought to have compassion on them, rescue them, give them the gospel, because truly they have nothing beyond this life. And, and anything that we should, anything that, that we receive from them that is good, we should be thankful for that. I think it was, it was in my reading, and I forget to write down exactly who said it, but I think it was Matthew Henry who said that uh, Abraham lived in the land of promise and he received from the people there favors with thankfulness and insults and injuries with patience. He received their favors with thankfulness and their insults with patience. That's how we interact with the people around us. When they insult us and when they do harm to us, we are patient and we bear it. We 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 we're long suffering toward it. And then when we receive something good from this world, we should thank it, as a, thank God for it, because it is a good gift from God. But then when we don't receive anything good in this world, how should we respond? With patience. How can we do that? Because this world's not our home. And so anything that we get while we're passing through, we enjoy it just as a sojourner would. And how do we relate to the things of this world? Do we heap up treasures in this life? Is that what we should be driving for? No, we we know we shouldn't be doing that because it's all passing away. Your kingdom is going to shrink to about a 100 cubic feet, three feet by six feet by six feet. Your entire kingdom is going to shrink to that. And you are going to bury hundreds of your friends and loved ones until that day comes when hundreds of your friends and loved ones bury you. So like Abraham, when this is all said and done, the only thing we're going to lay claim to is six feet of dirt. That's it. We get a burial plot and that's all we get in a creation that is ultimately promised to the sons of God. But like Abraham, we have to look forward and live as if we have a stake in a city that has foundations whose architect and builder is God. There's a forward looking to this reality of living here as a pilgrim, understanding that this world is not my home and yet God has promised this entire creation to us because after the kingdom and after the judgment, there is a a global fiery conflagration in which everything is burned up with fire and He will create a new heavens and a new earth which will be this creation resurrected again and we in resurrected bodies will enter into that resurrected creation and we will enjoy that blessed land forever and ever. And that is our home. That's ultimately what we are longing for, ultimately what we are looking for. Ultimately, that is where our hope is. So this, all of this creation is promised to us, just like the land was to Abraham. All of the creation is promised to us. And so we live here in this place that is ours, but we don't yet possess it. It's an already, but not yet. It's ours, but we don't possess it. And we live in it as if we are just passing through, because we really are just passing through in this life. And he will raise us to newness of life, and He will seat us in that land forever and ever. And there we will dwell in a city, verse 10, that has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. That is the forward-looking aspect of that, and we will examine that next next week. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.